Lord Jesus, as we come together now before you and your word, would you give us yourself? In your own name we pray, amen. This past week I had the opportunity to have lunch with a friend of our church here, and that's Scott Sunquist, the president. He spent eight years in Singapore. So he told me a story about teaching a class at a seminary in Singapore, and he was teaching a class on evangelism. So one day in the class, he says, stand up, 35 students. Can you imagine this happening in our culture? Stand up if you've led anyone to the Lord in the past year. Anybody want to guess how many of them stood up? 35. 35 students, 35 stand up. He says, oh, okay. Sit down if, you know, or stay standing if it's three. Great majority of the room still standing. Stay standing if it's five. Most of the room still standing. Keeps working his way up, working his way up. Eventually, there's one guy left standing. 100 still standing, 200 still standing. Finally, he just looks at the guy and says, okay, how many? The guy says, 3,000. says, okay, we need to talk. So they go to coffee, and this was the guy's story. He was a gang member, and at age 14, he was asked to prove his loyalty to the gang. Now, you probably know from movies how that works. You got to go and clunk somebody in a rival gang. So there was a guy in the rival gang making trouble, so sure enough, he took, the, he took the lead pipe, he went out, he found the guy one night, and he let him have it across the head. The guy stumbles and falls into a, like, you know, like a 10-foot wide by 10-foot deep monsoon drainage canal thing. Presumably drowns. He's dead. The guy goes home, lives with his mom, just the two of them, He's depressed, he's 14, and he's killed a man. So he finds his hidden stash of liquor and he starts to drink. His mom's asleep, he's planning to kill himself, and he's sitting there, 14 years old. He looks up, there are only two books in the house, on the shelf. One of them is the New Testament. He takes down the New Testament, first time ever. He opens to page one, he reads the Gospel of Matthew. He is on fire. He waits for daylight. He goes to the local church. He waits for the pastor, and he won't even let the guy in the door. He says, you have to tell me, who is this man? Who is this man? Pastor says, so glad you're here. We could probably talk better if we go in my office. Come on, let's go in. They go in, they sit down. The man says, I read this last night. I have to know, who is this man? Now, you're probably rightly thinking that this morning's topic is evangelism. It's a worthy topic, but this morning's topic is actually worship. And when that 14-year-old gang member read the Gospel of Matthew for the first time, and when, because of his life circumstance, he could see 
with clarity that he was reading the story of a life that is beyond, that's simply from the beyond. And when his soul was caught on fire so that he hurried to the church and he didn't even want to wait and he had to know who is this man, for that man in that life circumstance, that is an act of worship. It's as much worship as he can do, as he knows how to do. But what a great act of worship it is. Because he is saying, that one I deem to be worthy, worthship, deeming worth. And he is proclaiming in his question and in his passion, this man is different. And that was for him an act of worship. And so the pastor, of course, says to him, this is God walking among us. This morning, friends, we want to spend a little time thinking together about worship. What we do here on Sundays is our primary, not our only, it's our primary expression of worship, especially together. We heard last week, we were in Romans 12, we heard, offer your bodies therefore as living sacrifices for this is your spiritual worship or it's your reasonable liturgy of your life. So the work we do, the way we treat each other, the way we live at home, all these things can be and wonderfully are acts of worship. Today we want to talk about our primary gathered together act of worship where we come and we set apart time and we order it and we structure it and we ask the Lord that we would please be able to see him to the degree that we would be moved beyond whatever we've brought with us and be able to say, who is this man? Who is this man? So we're, gonna just, we're just gonna walk in a really simple way with one of the most amazing worship moments in the Bible. You know it. It's Isaiah chapter six. You heard it this morning. And there's so much going on. We're just gonna walk through three simple steps. And the first one is this. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You know what I find amazing about that? What I find amazing about it is there's some context, but not much. But the context that there is, is massive, right? You can read in Second Chronicles about the life of Uzziah. Uzziah was, from all seeming observers, a success. Under Uzziah, the people flourished. The nation flourished. But eventually, Uzziah began to get too comfortable. He got a little presumptive. He began to presume on God. He began to, in small ways seemingly, but it's where it starts, to flout God's holiness, to flout it. And... Eventually then, Uzziah gets leprosy and he dies. It's a big deal. Historically, for the people of Israel, it's a big deal. They have thrived under this king. There are going to be all kinds of ripples that come because this king has died. So the context is, oh, wow, oh, no, uh-oh at a massive scale. But the commensurate equal 
context is, I saw the Lord. Uzziah is still dead. He still went off the rails. All the implications that are going to come are still going to come. Everything's still the same, except Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. This is what's amazing. So little context, but context equal to the moment. It doesn't matter what day it was. It doesn't matter about, you know, this morning I woke up and I was feeling this way and I was thinking about these things. I've been having this time or that time. So I sat down to pray and, you know, I felt like the Lord said to me, and it's all great. I hope it happens for you every morning. But no, it's none of that. It's simply in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and that was enough. That was equal to what was needed. So the first thing about worship is simply we want to know that we have been in the presence of God and simply being in the presence of God will be enough. What does it look like to see the Lord? I saw the Lord and he was seated on the throne, of course. And the you know, the trail of his robe or his glory in, the, in another translation filled the temple, of course. It can't be contained. It's not sparse. It's abundant. There are no limits to it. His glory fills the temple. And the seraphim are there, and the seraphim have six wings, three pair of wings, And with one pair, they cover their eyes. And with the other pair, they cover their feet. And with the other pair, they fly above him. Why? Well, partly because no one can gaze on the glory of the Lord. Partly because in the presence of the Lord, when we see the Lord, time stops. When we see the Lord, there's nowhere else to go. I used to work in a beautiful old colonial era church in the DC Beltway Loop. And we had the the new big church and we had the historic chapel. And periodically when things got overwhelming a bit, I'd go in the historic chapel and I'd just pray, just be there. So one day I go in the historic chapel, I sit down and I began to pray. Really, I was I was so pushed and pressed that I couldn't really name it all. So I really just sat down and said, Lord, here I am. Just, just meet me. And I felt like the Lord said, okay, take off your shoes. You're not going anywhere. You, you just need to be here. So took off my shoes, set them over to the side, said, okay, Lord, I'm here. I'm just here. The Lord said, take off your glasses. You don't need to be looking at your phone. You don't need to be looking at, you know, the hymnal, the prayer book. Don't even read the Bible. Just take them off. Just be here. I took off my glasses. And that's when I remembered this passage. There's nothing else to see. There's nowhere else to go. If we can be before the throne of the Lord and see him, we are at the place. The deepest, the greatest, the highest, the everythingest place. 
and there's not anything else to seek after. The seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. In Hebrew, the three-peat is the ultimate emphasis. He is more holy than we can say. He is a fullness to overwhelming of holiness. What is holiness? I've never read an adequate definition of the word or description of the word holiness. People don't try to just define it, so they try to describe it in some way. And I'm, I'm going to try and fail myself. I mean, I have to do something. But I think it's part of the point that it cannot be adequately defined. It is God's self-existence. It is God's never-ending livingness. It is his purity, not in an uptight, moralistic kind of way, but that he is simple and pure and always himself. And there's nothing in him that is categorized and different and separate. And you don't get one God one day and a different God another day. He is who he is. I am who I am. And holiness is this being that is perfected, whole, complete, not needing to be changed or taken anywhere or made any better or different. He's symbolized by fire. You sit around the fire pit, you can't take your eyes off of it. You've seen a campfire umpteen hours already in life but it dances and you just are mesmerized. But, you know, you know, you know, it's oxygen plus heat plus fuel, but what is it really? And how does it just happen if the things are right? God's holiness is symbolized in the fire. And Isaiah realizes in that moment, he realizes that he is not whole and pure, and he lives amongst a people who are not whole and simple and pure. And he says, Woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Jesus told us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're a man of unclean lips, you're a man of an unclean heart. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And what, what can I do in the presence of this? I remember one day when I was working at this other church I described after service, it was a service I wasn't leading or anything. I was just sitting with the family, which was, which was great. And I remember I was going out, and I saw one of the young guys. He'd been with me on a trip to Kenya. Bright young guy, sharp, athletic, good-looking. And he was, he was weeping publicly right there at the end of service, weeping. And I sat down and said, what's going on? And he basically said, he basically said, I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a man of an unclean life. And he had been in the presence and he had seen the holiness of the Lord that morning. And he was simply weeping because he wasn't that. And what he saw was so beautiful and good. It isn't that there was any moralistic preaching that was getting on people's cases. It was simply that he knew he wasn't that beautiful thing. So what happens? The seraphim take the tongs and they pick up a coal and they come to Isaiah and they touch his lips. Why? St. John of Damascus, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, these, these early fathers, they, 
tell us that this is a symbol of, in, of, of God incarnate. How does God make right the one who cries out, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips? Well, the way he always has done and the way that from Isaiah's perspective, he always will have done someday in the cross of Jesus Christ. And the coal is from the sacrifice, from the altar, but it is the embodiment of the presence of God, Jesus on the cross, the sacrifice on the altar, the embodiment of God. And the coal is pure, Jesus pure, and the coal burns and he brings the coal and he touches Isaiah's lips. And then Isaiah is transformed. And the Lord says, who shall I send? And Isaiah's like, me, me, me. Right? 14-year-old, who is this man? This man is God and he loves you. 3,000 people. He cannot help but tell the story. He goes to his friends and he says, you have got to meet this guy. You won't believe it because it's so good. But we don't worship to get that high. We don't worship to get any effect at all. We don't worship. It will, it will, true worship will fuel us into greater holiness. It will open our mouths and cause us to speak of the glory of God and to be jealous for it, but we don't come to it to accomplish that or any other end. True worship is an end in and of itself because God is the end and the fulfillment, the alpha and the omega is Jesus Christ. We come to worship simply because God is and because of who he is. But it's because of who he is and it's because of his character of love and it's because he isn't far from us but he longs to draw near to us. And it's because of the effect that this pure and holy love has on us that we are transformed and we are changed evermore into his likeness and thank goodness for it but we don't come to it to transact anything. We don't come to it as an equation. We simply come because he is. And he is worthy, worth-ship. We deem him to be worthy. And when we do that, then we discover, oh, this is what I was meant for. This is the deepest thing. This is the highest thing. This is the thing where I come fully into myself. I never knew. What do you know? Who would have thought? It's paradoxical. I lose myself. I find myself. But we do it just because he deserves it. And he meets us in it. Friends, when we come to this table every week, when we come to Holy Eucharist, we are stopping time. Every preacher hopes so, anyway. We're coming into a space and a time set apart. We're coming into a time structured and purposeful and ordered and ancient. As old as the hills, based on Jewish worship, inspired from the beyond. And we receive the coal of Christ. St. John of Damascus again. Let us receive the body of the crucified one. With eyes, lips, and faces turned toward it, let us receive the divine burning coal. 
so that the fire of the coal may be added to the desire within us to consume our sins and enlighten our hearts. And so that by this communion of the divine fire, we may be set afire and deified. Friends, let's go to prayer and simply tell the Lord in our hearts that we acknowledge that he is worthy. I invite you just to, wherever your imagination takes you with Isaiah's story, his vision rather, what he saw that day. I invite you to imagine that however you're led to imagine it. Simply call out to the Lord and say, yes, you, O Lord, are worthy. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. We acknowledge, O Lord, that you are worthy. And we are so thrilled. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.